Now, if you would, um, if you are able, if you would stand with me as we read from God's Word, we're going to read through all of chapter 6 in Galatians because we're here to hear from God, um, not from me. So read along with me. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too are tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. For do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. The one who sows his own flesh will from the fresh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are in the household of faith. Now see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, for by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation." And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning. And Lord, that your spirit would come, that you would... Feed the hungry, give thirst to those who are weary. And Lord, you would allow us to see what your word has to say for us this morning. Pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So what does it really mean to do good? Right, just about everybody on earth probably wants to be a good person. But what do we even mean by that? You know, is Christianity really just about generic kindness? You know, does gospel good mean anything different than the world's good, or do we just have a different branding on top of it? I think that the answer is yes, that the gospel that Paul has been vigorously defending throughout distortions, all throughout our study of the book of Galatians, also has something to say about how we practically live our lives. Paul wants us to do good, but he wants us to do a gospel good. A good that is informed by and empowered through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at three marks of what gospel good is, or three characteristics. And so if you're in your bulletins, you can take notes along on your first. Our first mark is going to be that gospel good does good to everyone. The gospel good does good to everyone. And we're going to be in this first one for a little while. So if you start noticing there's two more and I'm still here, don't worry. We'll get faster as we go along. But verse 10, it really summarizes this, this, really this whole chapter. So I'm going to start in verse 10 and then we'll work backwards up to it. In verse 10, Paul tells us, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are in the household of faith. So we'll focus on that phrase in the middle. Let us do good for everyone. 
Gospel good doesn't just do good to the people that it likes. It doesn't just do good to friends and family. It doesn't just do good to people who are good or just to the people who deserve it. The gospel means that we do good to everyone. Because the gospel is not just for the worthy or the deserving. Because Jesus came and he died to save the undeserving and the damned. And because of the good that Jesus did to us, we do good to everyone that we can. And the gospel demands that we do good even to our enemies. We do good even towards unbelievers and the unsaved. We do good even to those who would spit at you and hate you. And the verse begins and tells us in 10, so then as we have opportunity. So we should always be looking for opportunities to do good. Not just to do good when we feel like it. Not just when it's convenient. We're to do good every single chance that we get. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we should especially be looking for chances to do good to each other. And not just in our local church family, but to our brothers and sisters in the faith large and church universal for our brothers and sisters in our community but even those who are in other churches or our brothers and sisters in other nations and all across the globe but this verse isn't just giving us a hierarchy right it's not saying do good to each other first and then if you got left over time then you can do good to others instead he's trying to say you should be especially motivated to do good to each other because if we really are a family all in the same household but what does it mean to do good anyway, right? So I keep saying that word, we're going to talk about it a lot tonight, but what does it actually mean? Well, the rest of these verses go back to one kind of show us how do we do gospel good to everyone. Verse 1 shows us this is how you do good towards sinners. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So the primary way that we do good towards sinners is we seek the restoration that we want them to be restored primarily to a rightful relationship with Jesus and then also with the Christian community. The context here, it seems to have believers in focus, right? That, that Paul is thinking about those who kind of claim to be Christians but have been caught in some kind of sin. And I think it's a serious sin, right? It doesn't seem like it's just something minor, like they stubbed their toes and cursed. But the principle here, it, it remains no matter whether the sin is very large or it is small. No matter what the sin is, our goal is to see them restored. We're not told to just condemn them and to beat them up. We're not told to ignore the sin and pretend that we saw nothing. We're not just to excommunicate them and throw them out to the curb. No, we're to seek their restoration. But a warning comes at the rest of verse 1 too. So keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Now, some things this means we should just be careful, right? That we don't commit the same sin that they did. Well, that's part of it, but I don't think that's everything that Paul had in mind. I think Paul wants us to be careful that we don't sin in the way that we respond to other people's sin. Because a lot of sin happens in churches when we don't handle sinners in a biblical, Christ-honoring way. One way this happens in many churches is we ignore sin. Okay, instead of trying to restore our siblings, we turn a blind eye to it. But that's a false form of love. Believes we could just do good by letting things be private. But restoration never comes from ignoring sin. If you notice somebody has a broken bone or a serious infection, the loving thing is not to ignore it. It's to help them get it healed. 
Right? So we can also be tempted too in another way to just discard sinners. But this is a temptation just to escape and avoid our responsibilities. After all, you know, it's a lot easier to ignore sinners than to walk alongside them and try to help them come back to Jesus. We want someone else to do the work of restoration, but at least we can pat ourselves on the back and say we didn't ignore it. But condemning somebody's sin, it only reveals the justice of God and not His grace. But justice and grace aren't in conflict with one another. They're both necessary for restoration. For someone to be restored, sin's got to be acknowledged. It's got to be dealt with. It needs to be confessed. It needs to be repented of. But Paul also warns us that this entire process must be undertaken with gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. We confront sin, but we do it with a gentle heart. We're gentle not because we want to win, but we want to return him to Jesus. We confront much like Jesus did, who often was gentle even in the way he rebuked his knuckle-headed disciples. But we don't really love gentleness. Right? We like loud and boastful prophets, like preaching that tells it how it is, that confronts boldly, but we're told to have a spirit of gentleness. Anybody can be loud and cruel, but it takes the Holy Spirit to be gentle and loving to sinners. I'm going to use an illustration, kind of a, a pastor who's caught in sin, because this is an area, especially that I've seen churches misunderstand, misapply, or misuse these verses. Now, these verses don't just have pastors in mind. They have normal, everyday believers, right? So the restoration here, it's not about being restored and getting your ministry job back. It's about getting and being in a right relationship with Jesus and with his church. Right, so picture a pastor who's caught having an affair with someone in the church. Now, most of you probably don't have to picture that. I'm sure you can think of at least one or many churches where you've heard or maybe even been there and seen that happen. What are places tempted to do, right? Maybe tempted to ignore it. Maybe let's just uh, cover this up, keep it quiet. Maybe we'll acknowledge it briefly, but we'll just say something cheap about grace. Well, we're, well they're really sorry, so we've got to show grace. That's not true restoration. That's not doing gospel good because the gospel has to acknowledge the truth and the seriousness of sin first. My dad's been in this position, unfortunately, several times, pastors under him, and almost every time there were some in the church who just wanted it to go away and to do nothing, just wanted the sin ignored. That's wrong. But it's also wrong to just quickly condemn fire and then move on, wash our hands and be it. That's what some churches can do too. They rightly confront the sin, right? Even rightly remove and fire the pastor, which is good, should happen, but they don't always follow through after that. Right? They, they can leave the man or his family floundering instead of helping them be restored. Now, there are better ways to you know, remove them and then dig into a long process of restoration, which involves confronting sin, confessing it, and bringing it to light, helping them repent of their sins and get right with God. But some misunderstand this. They just see this whole thing of restoration as a process to get a pastor back in a pulpit. That is definitely, just to be clear, that is not what I'm advocating at all. Those who abuse people in their congregation, I think they're disqualified for ministry forever. But I'm saying we got to seek justice and grace. Right? You can say, hey, pastor, you can come and worship with us, but you can't lead us anymore. You just need to sit alongside us. We got to do all of this in a spirit of gentleness that's hoping that they get their soul right because that is the more important issue. That they're try and hope that their trust with the church can be restored as a normal believer. 
That's part of how we do get to centers. Again, not just to pastors, but to all believers. We need to do all of this with gentleness, hoping that they come back to Jesus and repent. Verse 2 tells us we also need to do good to the weak. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. One way that we do gospel good to the weak is that we bear their burdens. We care for them. We walk alongside them. When we see the weak are struggling, we come with them to help them. So many of you do this this last week or on Monday or throughout the week later when you showed up to the Gervin's house to help them tear up the floors so they could fix their foundation. If you were one of the ones who were there, you would figure out or realize fairly quickly this is a job and a burden they couldn't have handled on their own. They needed help. There's a flip side to this verse too that we don't like to consider. Right, sometimes you might be the weak one who needs someone to bear your burden. This verse doesn't say, if you read it again, it doesn't say, hey, bear the burdens of the weak who probably should have handled this on their own, but they're bad Christians, so now they need your help. That's not what it says. It says bear one another's burdens. The assumption here is that we're all going to have burdens and we need each other. All of us. Not just other people. But this goes against our culture, right? We don't want to be burdens. I was reading um, Grapes of Wrath this last week, and it made me pretty angry at points. It's about a, a good Oklahoma family during the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. They lose their land. They lose their home. So they pack up everything they own to a truck, and they start heading out to California, hoping that they're going to be able to find work. But they repeatedly, kind of along the way, re refuse the help of other people. People try to show them pity or, or give them bread or even just sell it cheaper. And they say, no, 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 don't take pity. We can pay. Just tell us how much it is. You know, is their Oklahoma pride. I just wanted to yell at them half the time. Like, you got, you're homeless. You're poor. You don't have any income. You don't know what the future holds. I've read this before, so I know it's not going to be good. You, you really <laughs> it's, would have been better if you just took some help. Let somebody be kind to you and bear your burden for just a moment. Right, there is something almost admirable about that, but here's what they were really saying and what we say when we refuse the help of others. We're saying, no, I don't want you to bear my burden. I don't want you to obey this passage of Scripture. I think only I'm allowed to obey it, not you. That's what we do. If you don't let others help, help you, you're prideful and you're in sin. And you're keeping other people from being able to obey Jesus. And you need to stop. You need to humble yourself. Verse 3 tells us, if anyone thinks he's nothing, or is something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. There's a lot of meaning in this verse. But part of it, I think, is that if you think you don't need people to bear your burdens, you are deceiving yourself. You're thinking that you're something, and you are nothing. You need help, too. So stop thinking you're special. You're just like all of us who need help. Verses 4 and 5 are a little strange, though. And if you notice, they almost seem to contradict what Paul had just said before, but let's look at it closer and see what it means. In verse 4, he says, Let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each has to bear his own load. Well, is Paul saying we should just bear our own burdens? Should be proud that we can handle it on our own? Now, I think part of this is just a warning against pride. Okay, to not just compare ourselves to other people, to not say, well, look, they have lots of burdens and need help, but I don't, and I'm doing pretty good on my own here. This phrase, then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. It doesn't mean that we go it alone. It just means it's better to not have pride because you think you're better than somebody else. But you're better than your neighbor. I want to share with you a quote from a theologian from the Reformation. His name was Johannes Brenz. I'm re reading him and his 
sermons on this verse kind of helped me understand what he was saying or what Paul is getting at. He says, Paul reminds them they should all examine their own actions and take pride in themselves. That is the important thing is for each person to make sure his work conforms to the word of God and is pleasing to God. And she should be at peace in his conscience, even if other people don't like it. To be proud in oneself doesn't mean trusting and glorifying in one's own merits, but that one should be content with one's work if it is pleasing to God, even if it's not pleasing to others. I love that. Right? We should care if we're pleasing God or not. Our pride doesn't come from our own obedience or even our own effort, but in whether or not we are pleasing our Lord and our Savior. Because ultimately, each of us will have to bear his own load. This has to do with judgment. This is not just about refusing others' help, but it means one day all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And we will have to answer for our own actions. You're not going to get to blame others there. You're not going to get to say that you would have sinned less if other people would have helped you out a little more and been kinder. You might even be right that they should have. Right? But God will deal with them when it's their turn to stand before the throne. At that moment, it's yours. I love that church father, Jerome, from about the 4th century, he said, you know, as long as we're in this present world, we can help one another by praying for, giving advice to one another. But when we come before the judgment seat of Christ, neither Job nor Daniel nor Noah will be able to intercede for everyone, but each one will bear his own burden. Right, sometime my, my son Calvin will get into trouble for pushing his little brother. And often he wants to blame him. I say, well, but dad, I was trying to play with my toys. If the baby would just leave me alone and stop touching my stuff, I wouldn't have to shove him. Okay? It's his fault. Okay? And I can respond and say something like, well, Calvin, right now you are at the judgment seat. I'm going to take care of your brother in a moment. But right now you need to bear your own load. You are responsible for your actions. And so we can't just feel prideful because we're better than other people or we think that we are something different. We need to abandon our pride. We need to bear one another's burdens. And we need to test your own work. To not just take pride in being better than other people, having less burdens than other people, but in pleasing Jesus. So don't compare yourself to your friends. Compare yourself to Christ. See how you match up then. Probably not as good as you think. Verse 6, he tells us of another group of people we got to do gospel good towards. He says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Okay, now no one can accuse me of just deciding to preach this verse today selfishly, right? We've been in Galatians since April. I went and checked. It's been about 9, 10 weeks. Verse 6 comes after verse 5, and chapter 6 comes after chapter 5. So this verse is about how Christians should share with their pastors or elders or those who are teaching the word. But first, I love how it frames pastors as teachers of the word. Okay, pastors shouldn't just be preachers of tradition, good stories, their own relevant ideas that we should teach the word and the word alone. Now, on one level, this is about sharing financially, providing for pastors, because teaching the word's work. Right? It does. It takes time to study it well. And because you're a very generous and kind church to me, I have time to read and to meditate on God's Word all throughout the week. So I come here on Sunday as somebody who has spent a lot of time wrestling with Galatians 6, chasing it, reading it, trying to figure out what it means. Now, certainly there are plenty of pastors who abuse this verse and take it to mean you need to pay them like CEOs and celebrities. 
Okay, that's not what this means, but it does seem to mean that we should share. But there's a lot of other ways it should share too. Let me share some of this with you. Because remember, it says, share all good things with the one who teaches. This is not just saying, hey, provide for them financially. I think one of the best ways that you can, you can share all things is by sharing your encouragement. Okay, I have a lot of pastor friends, or at least other pastors who will talk to me. Some, they may or may not be friends. I don't know. You'll have to ask them. Um, but almost all of them are really discouraged and burned out. Most pastors have considered quitting over the last two years, which might surprise you. Maybe it doesn't. They need to be encouraged. I'm not just talking about me specifically, but I'm talking about all pastors. And I think encouragement, too, it's best when it's specific encouragement. You probably have found encouragement much more meaningful when it's specific and precise. I don't just mean something like saying, hey, good sermon, pastor, although it's always good to hear that. That's nice. Um, but it's much better to hear, Man, pastor, thank you for helping me understand verse 1. I never really understood that we were supposed to correct people with gentleness. I missed that, but you pointed it out. Thank you. That was useful, encouraging. Or, Pastor, I was so discouraged and empty when I came today, but hearing the gospel proclaimed again, it renewed my spirit, and now I can leave here with joy. Yeah, that's a specific good encouragement. I wonder, that's much better than just, hey, good job, Pastor. I may not have done that good, and I know you don't have to lie to me. But part of what this is, too, is it's sharing because you are sharing some of what the Holy Spirit has delivered to you through me, back with me again. Because if I'm honest, too, there's a lot of Sundays that pastors wonder, what in the world are we doing? Okay, did, did that make sense? Anything I just said? Was anyone even listening? It seemed like there were a couple of people I noticed were asleep. You know, or sometimes it's just, well, thank God this book is over. I'm just glad I don't have to preach that passage again. That was rough. Now we're not going there anymore. But getting to share with you, for me, the joy of what God has taught me all week is joyful. And so then hearing that back, that you have received some of it, is encouraging and a blessing. So that's just one small way we could, do, we could share or do gospel good to one another. Because that kind of sharing, it's not just about building up a pastor's ego. That's not good either. But it's about celebrating what God has done. And what God is doing. That's what we're after. And again, this is not about me and Rob. There are hundreds, hundreds of other pastors just in our community that are hurting and discouraged. And you probably know many of them and have some maybe even like and have been a blessing to you. Why don't you go encourage them? Look for a way to share with them. Because this is about God's kingdom. This isn't just about Tanglewood. It's definitely not about me. Okay, that's, that's point one. That was most of our time, but I promise we're going to move faster here. So we need to do gospel good to everyone, but, but how much? What about when we get tired or we get weak? Well, point number two in your bulletins is do gospel good by not giving up, or gospel good does not give up. This is the second mark of it. Gospel good does not give up. So verses 7 through 9, they use this extended metaphor kind of of reaping and sowing. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. You've probably heard these verses or passages if you've grew up in church or been around it. You maybe have even quoted it from. But if you can't remember where it came from, Galatians 6. That's where this is, the sowing and reaping. So verse 8 again tells us the one who sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So what you plant in the ground is what you grow. If you plant corn, you're getting corn. You're not going to get watermelon. Okay? So, but here, Paul is not talking about plants. He's talking about spiritual matters. 
If you remember two weeks ago, we were in Galatians chapter 5, and Paul talked about the fruit of the Spirit and what I called the weeds of the flesh, the spirits and the weeds. And so I kept asking you, hey, which one of these is growing in your life? What are, what are you doing? Well, what you're growing is what you're planting. Right? So if you're a Christian, and if you want to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, if you want to grow in holiness, if you want to become more spiritually mature, listen, you will not reap holiness if you do not sow holiness. If you spend all week long ignoring your Bible, planting bitterness in your heart towards your neighbor, nursing anger about some other evil sinner somewhere else, and watering pride about how much better you are than others, then on Sunday you are just going to get a big harvest of sin. Okay, God is not mocked. What you sow all week long, if you, you ignore God and you ignore godliness, you're not going to show up on suddenly, Sunday suddenly more mature and spiritual. That's not how it works. You have to sow the Spirit. Verse 9 is the key of this, though. He tells us, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we don't give up. How many of you have felt like giving up? You don't have to raise your hand. I know it's all of us. Many of you have wondered, is it really worth it to love my enemy? They seem like they keep winning. And they're not very nice. You've been exhausted trying to love that neighbor, but they are just so negative and so annoying, you just don't know if you can do it anymore. You've been weary maybe of even serving the Lord in church. You feel underappreciated or like no one notices or wonder if you've even made a difference anyway. Let us not grow weary of doing good. We don't grow weary because the harvest is coming. We don't grow weary because the gospel is true. The time of reaping that Paul mentions, this is when Christ will return. And we are currently laying seeds that we may never see bloom. We're planting trees, not wildflowers. And the gospel good that you do, it will be rewarded, but probably not in this life. We need to understand that what Paul says here, this is not just a Christian idea of karma. This does not just mean that reaping what you sow doesn't mean whatever you put out in the universe, that's what you're going to get back. doesn't mean do good so that some good will come back to you. Doing God, doing gospel good without giving up, it means understanding that Jesus is on the throne. It means understanding one day He is going to come back. And we do good today because we know that He is watching even if no one else cares. Beloved, Jesus sees what you do. Don't give up. And the harvest is coming. And when Jesus comes back, you're not going to wish that you spent more time gossiping, more time in consumerism or hedonism. But you might wish you spent a little more time in prayer. Remember our ancestors of the faith. Abraham didn't give up. Even though he was 90 and he still didn't have the child that God promised him. Moses didn't give up even when he wandered 40 years in the promised land and he never got to live in it. Ruth didn't give up even though everything she knew was taken from her and she had nothing. Stephen didn't give up even as those stones drew blood and slowly killed him. The Apostle John didn't give up even though all his friends were martyred and he lived alone in exile. Paul didn't give up even as he was beaten Stoned, whipped, and shipwrecked. 
They didn't grow weary and they received their reward. They now stand in that great cloud of witnesses Hebrews tells us about that is cheering us on. And they yell out and they echo Paul's words, do not give up. You can't grow weary, the harvest is coming. You can do it and some of you are almost there. So we do gospel good to everyone without giving up. But what's the main way we do gospel good? What's the, the third mark? Well, we do gospel good. Gospel good proclaims the gospel. Gospel good is to proclaim the gospel, right? Everything we've mentioned this morning, it's necessary, it's biblical, it's gospel focused, it's gospel informed. But we also actually have to preach the gospel too. We can't forget that. It's not enough to just love our neighbors. We need to tell them about Jesus. We're not going to spend a ton of time on these last, you know, seven... Um, eight verses, so I'm going to kind of fly through them. You'll notice in verse 11, Paul says, See with what large letters I'm writing to you in my own hand. This is probably because Paul seems like he had help writing his letters. Maybe he dictated them or he just had help with his handwriting. Um, but from this point on, the letter, he writes it or he wrote it in his own hand. And it seems like he has large handwriting for some reason. And so in his own hand, he summarizes this entire letter of Galatians that we've been studying these many weeks. And he reminds them, in verse 12 of those legalizing Judaizers who want to make a good showing in the flesh and would force you to be circumcised in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Those legalists that want them to follow the law, they're only interested in building up their own platforms. They want their missionary update numbers to be able to list a big number of converts. They're not interested in the cross of Jesus. They don't understand its power. Verse 13 shows us they don't understand the law either. For those who desire to, those who are circumcised don't themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised, they may boast in your flesh. Over and over, Paul has shown us that they don't really understand the law in the first place. And they're not even obeying it as they are supposed to. They're just picking and choosing what they like. They especially don't understand the law should lead them to love God and love their neighbors. They just want to boast in their own accomplishments. But Paul says something different. In verse 14, it's kind of the key to this last section. He says, But far be it from me to boast of anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is so backwards to the Roman world. Okay, we've got a lot of crosses hanging up around here. Many of you be wearing them. They would not even say the word cross in polite company because it was so vulgar. It was so shameful and disgusting. It was the ugliest thing imaginable. Why would you boast in that? But Paul boasts in the cross. Paul is unashamed to speak of the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, died for our sins. At the cross, Jesus defeated and broke the power of sin, of death, and of demons. The cross was the greatest cosmic victory in the history of the universe. At the cross, Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. At the cross, Jesus, he paid our ransom so that we could be set free and live in freedom, no longer as slaves. At the cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath and the justice of God. At the cross, Jesus was our perfect sacrifice. At the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished and your sins are forgiven. 
Verse 15, for neither the circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but new creation. Salvation doesn't come through following the Mosaic law. Salvation doesn't come from being a really good person. It only comes through the cross. The cross of Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He paid that penalty that all of us deserved. And through the cross and the life and the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we can become a new creation if we put our faith in Him. But the only way to salvation, the only way to that eternal life is the cross. That's why we have to boast and proclaim in the cross. But some try to preach, some even try to preach the gospel without mentioning that bloody cross. Try to talk about Jesus as if he just came to give us some good advice on how to live. Or that Jesus just came to make our lives better and improve how things are. Or that Jesus just wanted all of us to just be nicer to each other and get along. Or as if Jesus just came so that he could meet our every need and make us as happy as we could ever be. No, Jesus came to die on the cross because justice and our sin demanded it. And we worship a crucified God, a God who would bleed and even die for you and for me. That is worth boasting about. That is worth proclaiming. We will never find salvation anywhere outside of that cross. But beloved, don't fall into the trap of legalism. Don't think that you can be good and righteous enough to earn your salvation. The cross declares that your sin is way worse than you know. But the cross also declares that grace is greater than you could imagine. Verse 16, all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon Israel of God. If you walk in the cross, you will find true and lasting peace and mercy. Not the peace that the world offers, but the peace that can only come from God. Now, I love verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Christ. You realize here that Paul is talking about his physical scars that he has. Paul has battle wounds from preaching the gospel. He was beaten and he was flogged five times with 40 lashes. How do you think his back looked after that? Okay, Jesus was flogged. He was flogged once. Any of you have probably seen the movie that reenacts how awful that is. Okay, now imagine Paul doing that about four more times. Then he was shipwrecked three times. And he was beaten with rods. He was stoned. They threw heavy rocks at him until they thought he was dead. His body had to be absolutely broken. I can only imagine the physical and health problems that he had. If he took off his shirt and was here, he could probably tell you about every single scar all over his body and where they came from. He asked Paul, hey, Paul, why are you missing a chunk of hair out of your head? Paul, what's that massive scar on your shoulder? Paul, why do your fingers look broken? How come your eyes are crooked and don't quite work anymore? He wouldn't tell you cool stories about the shipwreck or even that snake bite. What he would say is these are the marks of Jesus. And then he would preach the gospel to you. The gospel of the cross of Christ. Beloved, we have to preach the gospel. We have to preach the redemption that comes from Jesus. We've got to proclaim it to the unbelievers, 
to proclaim it to those who are believers or think they're believers but aren't really. We can't do gospel good without proclaiming the cross. And so all of us who are here, whether you're an unbeliever or not, if you don't, haven't put your faith in Jesus, you need to believe in the gospel of Christ. To put your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone and receive the salvation that is freely yours. It has been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. And receive it. And then all of us, let's go and proclaim it. Not just to those who don't know, but to those who know and forget that we should boast in the cross. So this morning we, we've talked about the three marks of the gospel. Really, we should do gospel good to everyone. That we do gospel good without giving up. And we should also do gospel good by proclaiming the gospel. I hope that we as a church can preach the gospel with our actions and with our words. And that our lives and our very bodies would bear the marks of Christ. I'm going to close us in prayer and then we're going to turn to a time of communion. Lord, I, I thank you for the cross. Lord, that you, you didn't have to have your arm twisted you were not forced, that you freely chose because of your grace and your steadfast love that goes to a thousand generations to die on the cross to make a way possible of salvation for all sinners. Lord, if there are those here who don't know you, would they put their faith in you? Would you reveal your beauty and your wonder and your love towards them? And Lord, those of us who do know you, would you reveal again your love and your mercy and your care and your faithfulness for us? And Lord, would we leave this place doing gospel good in our community and all over this world, wherever we go, to everyone because we are bearing the marks of Jesus and because we are proclaiming your gospel and how good and wonderful you are. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Invite our worship team to come and to lead us as we celebrate and praise and worship our Savior once more through song. Nothing compares to the promises of Jesus. Now, to close with this benediction from Jude, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.